Mukam karoti vachalam bhangum langayati girim yat kripa tamaham bande parmananda madhavam We salute Sri Krishna, the archetypical soul, whose words of wisdom make the dumb speak eloquently and cause the lame man to scale the highest mountain. We salute Sri Krishna, the world teacher, who is the delight of his mother and the pride of his father. To that one, Sri Krishna, our eternal salutations. Om Yam Brahma Varnandarudra Marutaha Shudanvanti Dvoish Dvoi Vedai Sangapada Kramo Panishadoi Gayantiyam Samagaha Dhyanavastita Tadgatena Manasa Pashantiyam Yogino Yashantam Navidu Sura Suraganat our eternal salutations to that one who is the truth of life and existence and whom the saints and sages call by various names. Our eternal salutations to that one whose glories are sung in the various hymns of the different religious scriptures of the world but whose infinite and undying grandeur no mortal mind can comprehend. Our eternal salutations to that one on whom the devotees meditate in the shrine of their heart, realizing an ineffable presence in their deepest contemplations. May he prompt our minds toward the path of truth and righteousness. May she reveal herself unto our souls and dispel the gloom of death, fear, doubt, and darkness. Om peace, peace, peace. Om Sahana, Om Sahana Vavatu, Sahana Ubunaktu, Sahaviryam Karavavahai, Tejasvi Navaditamastu, Ma vidveshavahai Om Shantihi 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 May Brahman protect us, may Brahman sustain us, and may Brahman illumine our thinking process. May we not find fault with each other, with the world, or with what we study. And may what we study be a source of inspiration to us eternally. Om Peace, Peace, Peace. May peace be unto us and may peace be unto all. Om Hari Om. Good evening, all, and despite absentees amongst some of our Sangha, <coughs> we meet tonight to study very briefly chapter 15 because it's only 20 slokas it's the shortest in the Bhagavad Gita I believe and therefore should take us a very short time to go through it but I've chosen 
the salient teachings out of this collection of 20 slokas. And remember, it's coming right after chapter 14, which we studied on Saturday. And the summation of that chapter was that Krishna asks us to take refuge in our knowledge. Idam Ganam Upashrija was the way it was put to take refuge in that knowledge which leads one up and out of delusion and ignorance and maya as we were just chanting and prompts our minds toward the path of truth and righteousness the sunlit path helps us keep our minds on that further he said that we should come to us by the gunas and know what they are sattvas, balance, rajas, activity, and tamas, inertia. And so he wants us to make a study of the gunas as he's proposed them in several of the chapters. And in chapter 18, when we finally arrive there, he goes through the gunas in depth in their different applications. But he called it prakriti sambhavaha, these gunas born of nature bind the indestructible one into the body. That is, this Atman is not the body or mind or energy or any of those sheaths, but nevertheless, it's there inside of them, and the gunas play a great part in that. The gunas associated with the mind particularly, there's also the gunas associated with nature, and the gunas on various levels of existence, but the gunas associated with the mind in particular are an interesting study for those who want to see the difference between nature and their soul, to know the difference between what Sri Krishna called in those times Purusha and Prakriti. Then in chapter 14 he went on to talk about transcending the gunas. After you know what the gunas are, then uh, you find that you need to go beyond even the most refined guna called sattva because from sattva you get things like uh, the desire to get free, uh, devotion, the will to study and do sadhana. Sattva is a power of revelation but it still leaves you sh short of realization of Brahman. So then you have to go on to a kind of a purer state called pure sattva. Well pure sattva is useful for liberation and it allows you to wend your way to that realization at the highest level. So he wanted you to transcend those gunas, tri-gunatita. If you could do all those things, take refuge in knowledge, find the gunas, aspy them, transcend them, then he said you were fit for the Brahman state. We had a list on the board Saturday, those who do not hate the gunas when they're present or when they're absent, those who are the same in pleasure and pain, in praise and blame, same to friend and foe, who are renounced in all their undertakings, who serve the Lord with unswerving devotion, who regard everything evenly, those ones are fit for the Brahman state. Brahma Bhuyaya Kalpate, he called it. And that also was a very short chapter, that chapter 14 some 27 slokas, followed by this chapter which we arrive at today called Purushottama Yoga. Purushottama is the supreme soul. In this chapter, basically, he gives us the teaching that there is the jiva as Purusha, there's 
Ishvara as another Purusha, and then there's Purushottama, the Supreme Purusha, so that the Jiva, that is this embodied soul, this consciousness that's associating with these mechanisms and with nature is one Purusha, and then the Ishvara soul, that is the great soul, the, the soul like Krishna or like Ramakrishna, is another Purusha, a higher Purusha. Both of those are operating in the world of change, that is, they're associating with this world of change, but the jiva becomes bound by the world of change where the Ishvara rises above it, that is, masters it and, and conducts its powers. But beyond both, there's a supreme purusha, so that's a teaching he gets into here. Purushottama Yoga is the name of the chapter, therefore Purushottama means the highest supreme being, the highest purusha. But before we get to that, he starts out, talking about that goal that should be sought. And that's the first entry on the board. Param tat parimargitavyam. And that's sloka 4. So let's read up to sloka 4, starting with sloka 1. And this is the chapter in which he mentions the Asvata tree. Now that is another name for the banyan tree, the banyan family. We have a lot of those where I come from in Hawaii. That's a tree which, by all intents and purposes and appearances, has its roots above and its its branches below, as Sri Krishna says. He uses the Asvata tree for the perfect metaphor for nature, for Prakriti, and for Maya. And he also demonstrates further the idea of the gunas and various things associated with the tree. He says, at the very outset, of chapter 15, they speak of an imperishable asvata tree with its roots above and its branches below. Its leaves are the Vedas. That one who knows it is the knower of the Vedas. Below and above spread its branches, nourished by the gunas. Sense objects are its buds, and below in the world of men stretch forth its roots, engendering action. Its form is not here perceived as such, neither its end nor its origin nor its existence. Having cut asunder this firm-rooted asvata tree with a strong axe of non-attachment, then that goal should be sought for, going whither they do not return again. I seek refuge in that primeval purusha whence stream forth the eternal activity. Now there's the first four slokas, and arriving at the fourth means... Param tat parimargitavyam, I seek refuge in that goal that should be sought after, he says. So just to revisit these four slokas again, the imperishable asvata tree with its roots above and its branches below. Well, asvata, if you look into the nature of that word, it means that which is different today than it was yesterday. That is, it changes day by day. And it's also rather a topsy-turvy tree, you see, it's seen with its branches below and its roots above. It can be looked at that way. So it refers to phenomenal existence. Everything that's in this projected world is found as a metaphor in that asvata tree. That is, its nature is imperishable, and it goes on and on, but it's changing imperishable. It goes on and on through ages, and even when it disappears, as we found out on Saturday, and goes into an unmanifested state, it appears again in a manifested state in another stretch of time. So it's always there. Something always exists, whether it's visible or not. 
it's always changing, but it's eternal. That's the conundrum of it. It's sort of like a chameleon that changes colors all the time. You don't know what it is from time to time. You think it's a different animal when you see it because it has a different color, but it's the same animal and it's just changed its shade. In the same way, phenomenal existence is always presenting this long march of events in front of our eyes and senses, and it's always going through changes, yet what underlines it is internal, so it too has to be eternal. It goes on and on and on over interminable stretches of time. And it's precisely why he says in, in Sloka 3, its form is not here perceived as such, neither its end nor its origin nor its existence. So you can't prove that it has existence, you can't prove that it goes out of existence, because you can't see its beginning or its end. Nobody can. Nobody has been able to, although people have postulated and proposed various theories about how long cycles of time go on and how, how long they uh, take to dissolve. Even science with its Big Bang Theory and uh, the idea of kalpanas or kalpas in Indian cosmology, the idea that there's these cycles that go on and on interminably, but they just start over again and repeat themselves. So he says in Sloka 3, its form is not here perceived as such. It's very, very illusory. Its end, its origin, and its existence cannot be seen. So cut it asunder. Cut it asunder with the axe of non-attachment. Because its branches are nourished by the gunas, sense objects are its buds, and in the world of men stretch forth its roots, which engender action. So it's continually going forth on the fuel of this, what we call karma, action and reaction, cause and effect. That's how it, it gets fueled, and the gunas are there behind it. Remember, the gunas are balance, activity, and inertia. They're like three strands of one rope that's binding everything to this cycle of time, to this appearance of space, time, space, and causality. So the gunas are in everything. So the gunas have, as I said, not only that application in your mind, I'm slothful, I'm active, I'm, I'm balanced, but they also have an implication in nature. Either things are completely stopped, things are moving at a rapid pace, or things are very balanced and peaceful. And one's daily life has those gunas inside of 60 seconds, you might feel each of those gunas. Inside of one hour, you might feel them. Inside of 12 hours, you might feel them. In 24 hours, in one year, in 12 years, you'll feel these cycles of gunas going around. And Krishna is simply saying, if you use that system, you get an advantage. You can see how time passes and you can watch the changefulness of this eternal process. If you're going to wait for it to end, you'll never arrive at the end because it's infinite. Everything's infinite. So whether or not it's real is not really the point. You see, you can say it's unreal, but then it's real as long as you perceive it. Then you can turn around and say it's real, but then it disappears for you in samadhi. The seers have found that it goes away when you get attainment. So you cannot say it's either real nor non-real. So knowing all this about phenomenal existence, sometimes they call it maya, or prakriti, nature, or he sometimes he calls it the mahat brahma, the great mind, the great cosmic mind, beings give it up. It's 
dragging on interminably and if they go with it then they get dragged on interminably so they stop and they become their purusha because prakriti and all this march of events is insentient it doesn't have any life to it purusha has the only life your soul yourself therefore tatvamasi prashantam amagam brahmanvayam yatparam yourself is the eternal pure principle yourself is uh, without defects yourself is one without a second yourself is supreme it's sentient it's conscious prakriti and events and phenomena are not they're like that asvata tree that's constantly pouring forth activity so krishna then says in sloka 4 i take refuge in that primeval purusha that transcends this process from which stream forth the activity i'm not taking refuge in the activity itself see that's what's called renouncing the world krishna puts it in a rather scientific way in these two chapters rather than asking you to renounce on faith or renounce via neti neti uh, not this not this process of, of elimination or any of those methods that we've talked about he's giving you a very scientific way to renounce the world you simply arrive at yourself and know that to be the source of everything all the activity that's streaming forth from Prakriti. Oh, let it go on. You see, let it do its dance. Let it have its play. Let it have its time. I'm going to come back to myself and dwell here and watch it. So you become what they call witness consciousness because there's where the sentiency is abiding. If you get into this process of the Asvata tree growing constantly and shedding budding and flowering and all the branches constantly changing shapes. One time it looks like roots and other times it looks like branches. You can never tell inside of that tree what's going on. It's always changing. And beings get sucked into that illusion of change for lifetimes. Samsara. So samsara or phenomenal existence is to be withdrawn from. If the seer becomes identified with the scene, then it mixes itself up with the scene. And it forgets itself as the seer. What do you think attachment is if it isn't attachment to something in Maya? There's some object I like. And I, I identify so much with that object that I become the object. Or there's some drug I like. So I take that drug so often that I become that drug. You see, it's my life. Or there's some person I like or some relationship I like, and that becomes the only life for me. That's all getting attached to various processes in nature, in Prakriti. It's like tying yourself to that banyan tree forever and becoming confused as to its nature, as he says here. Its form is not perceived as such, neither its end nor its origin nor its existence is perceived. It's called being hypnotized by Maya. And those who want to cut the ropes, free them from this ever-changing banyan tree of Prakriti and Maya, they do so by transcending those three gunas. Because he says here, below spread its branches nourished by the gunas. So the gunas are the nourishment for this Asvata tree. Sense objects are its buds. So when it buds, you see that's another sense object. It's budding forth constantly with these various objects that people get attached to. And then below in the world of action are its roots. 
Those are the first three slokas, but at the end of the third sloka he says, having cut this firm-rooted tree with a strong axe of non-attachment. After you do that, then, padam tat parimargitavyam, then that goal should be sought. Now that's very interesting because many people start to seek that goal before they give up the world. And that's very difficult. Here you're trying to see God who's different than nature. God who's transcendent of nature, but you're still in nature and you still believe nature to be the reality. So this is why many people don't succeed in the spiritual path, because they don't have that right discrimination out front. Maybe they hear it from the teacher and they haven't developed it yet, or they don't believe, or they have doubts. But the teacher, the guru, comes and in Vedanta we say viveka vairagya. First you discriminate between the real and the unreal, the changing and the unchanging, and then you detach from the changing. The two V's, which are the two D's, discrimination and detachment, viveka vairagya. Those are the first two jewels in Vedanta that you're given. And many statements go along with that. Uh, Brahman satya jagadmitya, Brahman's real, the world's unreal. These truths are being introduced to your mind. And if you get it early on and understand it and accept it, then the path is going to be much easier. If not, then it's a difficult proposition. So that's why he says here, cut the firm-rooted ashvata tree with a strong axe of non-attachment. Get non-attachment early on. Then practice. Don't get into the practice with these misconceptions clouding your thinking these old ways of thinking. So after cutting that firm tree, after you see it that way, then that goal should be sought. Going whither they do not return again. There's two things you become very certain of. This world is unreal, and I'm going to get beyond it. My nature is beyond it. If I want to get back to my true nature, then I must go to the Purusha, I must go to myself. You think it's alien to our Western culture? No, Christ said, birds have nests, foxes have holes, but Son of Man has no place to lay his head here. He's saying the same thing, basically. This world is not for you, because you don't want to give your consciousness to something that's unconscious. You don't want to give your sentiency to something that's insentient. So when people pray to nature, you see, nature has no ears. <laughs> nature is just this insentient mechanism that's marching on interminably and with their romanticized, sentimentalized ideas, misconceptions. They think God is somewhere in nature. Vedanta puts that really clear for you out front. God is not in the world. The world is in God. And there's where you have to make a subtle shift of consciousness. When you make that shift, then teachings like this become very clear to you. It's easy for you to say, I renounce. You can renounce as a monk, or you can renounce as a householder. Either way, all it really means is I've seen the insentient nature of nature. I've seen the asvata tree. I know the chameleons change colors. I know it's insentient. I know God's not in it. And since all of that is true, you turn around and look at your original face. So Ram Prasad has that song, Turn and Look at Your Original Face. It's turn within. Turn away from this show this presentation of Maya that's constantly throwing up pictures and over ages, all wrapped up in this rope of the three strands of gunas, all 
impeded by time, space, and causality, all contained in these five sheaths of body, mind, intellect, life force, and ego. Give it all up. Come to know your true self to be the Purusha, the Atman. Because if you do, going wither, you do not return again to this. And that can be interpreted in two ways. That you do not return again ever to this march of time and space causality under the auspice of the three gunas, or you never return here again in ignorance of your true nature. That's why I read the first look of chapter 14, and I'll repeat it again going backwards. I shall again declare that supreme knowledge, the best of all forms of knowledge, by which knowing all the sages have passed from this world to the highest perfection. That's sloka one of the previous chapter, chapter 14. And here again now he's saying it, he's repeating it. That goal should be sought for going whither they do not return again. He says it at the beginning of both of these chapters after discoursing on the gunas and describing what prakriti is and giving an analogy of the asvata tree. See, Just take a look at the banyan tree and see what a unique kind of form it is. It's beautiful. It's enchanting. It's impossible to understand it in a sense. You can get lost in it. There's a banyan tree on Maui which is the size of a park block and you can go in it and walk for 10-15 minutes. You see there are all sorts of little corridors and it branches are hanging down. It's a very good analogy for this phenomenal existence. Now remember, prakriti, maya, and nature, or the English word nature, and samsara are all pretty synonymous terms. They may have a little bit different connotations to them. There's a cosmic maya, and there's a collective maya, there's an individual maya, and there's a very deluded maya. Whereas prakriti really means nature in its two forms, manifested and unmanifested. Manifested meaning all the worlds, not just this physical world, meaning this universe that we see here and up in space, but all the worlds of the ancestors. Well, if you want to take it in order, the worlds of the ghosts, the prittas, the spirits, the world of men, the world of ancestors, the world of the gods, and the world of the rishis, the sages and saints in their subtle bodies. There are five different realms of being, five different akashas, and we don't see four of them when we're in this physical world. That's all called, as it were, a combination of manifested and unmanifested property. So in that way, nature is everything that's held in potential, a thought, and then when the thought goes out, it turns into all this potential. It manifests itself. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But when God wanted to use the Word, then the worlds came about. Now, sometimes they've interpreted the six days of creation theory and one day of rest as, as six stages in which this Word manifested. In our tradition, we have it in four stages. Para, Pashanti, Madhyama, and Vaikari. So it starts from the top, Para. Para is just Purusha, it's Atman, it's Brahman. It's, there's nothing there but the light of intelligence. It's a pure conscious awareness. But then when Para wants to manifest something, it'll create an atmosphere called Pashanti. And there, concepts will start to get formed. 
concepts need space too. They don't need physical space. They need mental space. So there's a realm in which concepts are not yet concretized and they're not yet even materialized in any way. They're not even concepts really, but there's a space for them to happen. That would be, roughly speaking, what Prashanti is, the second level of this uh, manifestation of the word. Then Madhyama is where the thought starts to get concretized because it takes on the thought of an object and the name of an object and the sound of an object. In that realm is where thought gets married to the form, not the real form yet, the idea of the form, and the sound of what it's going to be called. You see, it's vibration. So it's the idea of the object with the name, the early stages of the name, then connected with the idea of what the object's going to be. That's Madhyama, intermediary phase. From there it spills forth into Vaikari. That's where you see everything turning into solid objects. And the Word was with God, the Word was God. Then he breathed on the waters and it spilled forth. So you can take all these hints you find in the Old and New Testament and correlate them roughly to some of the more ancient teachings of Vedanta and Samkhya and find out that the idea of creation theory was taken too literally. There was no creation at all. It was all projected out of the Word. And later on they came to misunderstand that or to concentrate too heavily on one side of it, take the symbolic too literally, and overlook the cosmic laws which were going on. And of course overlook the Almighty Father. You see, Para, the Supreme, overlook that completely and only believe in the form. So there are all sorts of stages to that too, and that's what we would call stages of Maya too. Maya would start out as just a set of cosmic laws which if you saw them correctly, fine. But later on they'd start to get misused. The banyan tree would start to tangle. Its branches would start to tangle into knots that nobody could get through. And finally it would come down to the human level, the human mind. And finally you're believing in impossible things. Like there's a monster in the sky eating the moon a bite at a time every night. That's what they used to believe in. So you start believing in things like that. Then by studying and finding your way back toward the cosmic laws, you start believing in physical matter. You don't believe in anything mythical anymore. You lose the other side of the quotient. Spontaneity, possibility. All the time, unmanifested and manifested property are going in and out of existence, as it were, by cycles over interminable periods of time. And this Purusha bound to the five shisas, looking on, getting hypnotized by it. I think it's pretty easy to see what Sri Krishna is talking about, but it needs to be explained in depth more. This fourth sloka, which is on the board, of course, implies the goal that should be sought. And if you seek that goal, which you may encapsulate here as seeing the gunas in nature and withdrawing from them, explained by cutting the asvata tree with the firm acts of non-detachment, and then going after the goal which is to be sought, which means you never come back again to that old state of ignorance. You cut the thing down, you're not thinking about it anymore, it's not hypnotizing you, it's not drawing you into it as the reality. And now that that's out of the way, it should be fairly easy for you to say, Tad Thomasi, oh I see, I'm that, I was mixed up with nature so much, 
every day of my life, every minute of my life, every second of my existence. Now I've come to cut the tree down. And there's a goal now to go after. And that goal's at hand. It's now at hand because I've gotten rid of all the extraneous, all the peripheral stuff. And I see myself. Well, it's called self-realization. Enlightenment or moksha or mukti or koivalya or various ways they've explained it. So what is that goal? He puts it in the last half of Sloka 4. I seek refuge in the primal purusha, from which streams forth the eternal activity. All of this asvata tree actually comes from, you might say, the ground of existence. It has its cause. And you haven't seen the cause because you've taken it to be the cause. And it's very nicely hypnotized you into thinking that it is the reality but the activity of it streams forth from something else. He's calling that the primal purusha. And let's move on. We'll get to that. Next is sloka 6. But first sloka 5 says, Free from pride and delusion, with the evil of attachment conquered, ever dwelling in the self, their desires being completely stilled, liberated from the pairs of opposites known as pleasure and pain, the undiluted reach that goal eternal. So now he gives you a little formula how to take refuge. First, you cut the tree down. Then you take refuge in what's left over, the primal purusha. You may not know it yet, but now he gives you a list of qualifications or attributes or practices. I'll read them again. Be free from pride. Be free from delusion. That should be easy if you've cut this asvata tree down. Then the delusion will go away. Conquer the evil of attachment. Conquer the evil of attachment. Dwell in yourself. I'm going to dwell in this one Purusha, which I know to be the ever-present self. Still your desires. Try and reach desirelessness. One could be enlightened right in this moment if they got rid of their desires. They could be enlightened in this very moment. So he wants you to get rid of this delusion and still the desires Liberate yourself from the pairs of opposites, pleasure and pain being one of them. Probably one of the most basic is pleasure and pain. Then when you're undiluted, you reach that goal eternal. Padam avyayam, he calls it. That which is beyond the gunas of nature. Then that brings us to sloka 6, which is on the board. And I'm going to reach sloka 6 and 12. Notice I didn't put sloka 6 through 12, but sloka 6 and 12 together. 6 is that the sun illumines not, nor the moon, nor fire. That is my supreme abode, going whither they return not. What's that sound like, Tejamaya? It sounds like puja. The Kato Upanishad sloka in our puja. Na Tatra Suryabhati. Here he says, not the sun, nor the moon, nor fire. That is, that Brahman illumines the sun, moon, and fire. They don't illumine him. He shows up everything else, that primeval Purusha. It doesn't show him up. Have you seen him? Simply because the sun's shining? You don't see Brahman. But you don't know that the sun is shining because of Brahman. So Brahman's illumining the sun. Brahman's giving it the power to shine. So that the sun illumines not, nor the moon, nor fire, and that is my supreme abode. 
Here's the primal Purusha. He's telling you now where it is. Going whither they return not. This is the third time in two chapters he's mentioned the path of non-return. Those who return not to embodied existence, you could say on one hand, or they return not to embodied existence in ignorance. Because he himself has come back into embodied existence, but he's not ignorant. See, so it doesn't necessarily mean you never come back into a body again. It means you never come back into a body thinking the body and the world to be real. You'll come back knowing the self to be real. And that that illumines the sun and the moon and the stars for you. Before, you didn't know that, and you're looking up and saying, oh, the sun is making everything shine. The light of a million suns is within you. Not just one sun, but millions of suns shining in space. And millions of heavenly suns, these shining beings, are also all in you. You're that one indivisible self. He's calling that the supreme abode. We'll read 7 through 11, but let's skip to 12 real quick and read that, because it's very similar. That light, which residing in the sun, illumines the whole world, that which is in the moon and in the fire. Know that light to be mine. It's my supreme abode and it's my light. That's the supreme Purusha. Now go back to Sloka 7 and we'll read between 7 and 12. An eternal portion of myself, having become the embodied being in the world of embodied beings, attracts the senses and the mind abiding in Prakriti. So an eternal portion of myself called the embodied being. You are an eternal portion of that one primeval Purusha. All activities are in Prakriti. All cause and effect is in Prakriti. All praise and blame is in Prakriti with the gunas. All dying and being born again is in Prakriti with the gunas. All evil and all virtue and all vice is in Prakriti with the gunas. You're Prashantam. You're Amalam. You're Yatparam. You're Brahmanvayam. You're free of defects. You see, you've been identifying with the wrong thing. Back to the early slokas. Cut the trunk of the Asvata tree and get non-attachment. You've been identifying with the wrong thing as reality. Now, come back and set everything aright. See it as it is. That's the changing Asvata tree called Prakriti, called phenomenal existence. Here's the witness looking on. When I got into that, I got involved in all these dualities. And that's why he said, get beyond the duality of pleasure and pain and so forth, virtue and vice, and they dwell in their self. Here, though, he puts it in terms of the jiva, so the eternal portion of the self, and that self is called six senses. He's, he's taking the Samkhya philosophy and other systems and boiling it down from 24 to 6. Seeing, hearing, touching, tasting, smelling, plus the mind. His six senses. What does he say about them? When the Lord obtains a body, and when he leaves it, he takes these and goes, as the wind carries sense from their sources. He gives it a poetic turn. But the important thing, besides the beautiful language, is to come to know that, that the Lord takes on the body and gives it up. He'll put the power of the senses in the body, and the mind in the body, not the brain, but the mind. It's something separate from the brain, you see. And then he'll put it there, and when he gives up the body, he'll take it back and put it in another body. 
it shows that he's subject to the gunas, but he's not under their control. If he enters into a body like Ramakrishna or Buddha or Christ, he's subject to suffering the gunas like everyone else because he's entered into a body completely permeated with the gunas, just like tea is permeated with a sugar cube. But the difference between the jiva, that's an eternal portion of the Lord who doesn't know about the Ashvata tree, doesn't know that there's a difference between nature and soul, between Purusha and Prakriti, between Atman and Maya. And the soul that does, like the Lord, when he puts the senses in the body and withdraws it, is a very vast difference. So the Lord attracts the senses and the mind to him. That's the wording used, which means he must not be the mind and senses. He must be just using these mechanisms in the body. He'll give up the body and he'll take the the subtle essence out of them. And then he'll visit another body and put them there and, and visit there. This is called Ishvara. So Jiva is the embodied soul and Ishvara is the supreme soul in a body. They both change. They're both subject to the gunas. But one is bound by the gunas and the other isn't. Also is a nice definition between a bound soul and a freed soul a Jivan Mukta who's gotten free and one who's still suffering. Why is the Jivan Mukta so filled with knowledge, so filled with light, not afraid of death, detached from all undertakings and so forth and so on? And the other one is completely ensconced in those very things. So the direct disciples who came with Sri Ramakrishna and who came with Buddha and who came with Christ, many of them were some of the same souls because they always attend on the avatar whenever it makes an appearance. Sri Ramakrishna said that in the gospel too. He said he saw some of his devotees and his sangha had been devotees of Christ before, two of them particularly, the direct disciples. So these direct disciples are all beings who by attending on the avatar all the time know the secret, Ishvara Kotis means Ishvara, that supreme soul, who visits bodies and gives them up and isn't caught in the knots and tangles of the Asvata tree of phenomenal existence. But there are also people who attend, Ishvara Kotis, those who attend on the avatar, and they too are free by their very proximity to that being. Whereas the jivas are bound by the gunas, they believe in the gunas, they believe in nature, they believe the world to be real, they believe they were born, they believe they're going to die. This is why we talked up Sunday about the Gnostic view with the conventional view of science and theology, is that they come to know a certain truth based on the Vedantic thinking, and their whole thinking changes then. Their mind gets transformed, and they're not thinking in terms of conventional view anymore. You can't realize your true self if you think in conventional ways. You've got to get beyond conventional ways of thinking. And the world is all convention. Mundane, human convention. Politics is that. Business is that. Religion is that. It's all mundane, human convention. And it's based upon that. Very seldom do you ever rise up and out of it. Glimmers of that truth shine through sometimes. But these beings are never attracted to glimmers, like a fish is attracted to a shiny lure in the water. See? They, they know that the light 
of Brahman lights up the universe, not the sun or the moon or fire, but the light of Brahman lights up the universe, lights up the sun. So this Loka 7 is very powerful. An eternal portion of myself, having become the jiva in the world of jivas, attracts the senses with mind as the sixth, abiding in prakriti. But when the Lord obtains a body and when he leaves it, he takes these and goes as the wind carries scents from their sources. Presiding over the ear, the eye, the touch, the taste, the smell, and the mind, he experiences objects. That's the five senses in the mind. The deluded do not see him who departs, stays, and enjoys, who is conjoined with the gunas, but they see who possess the eye of wisdom. So, if an illumined soul comes to earth, only a few recognize him. The rest are completely in disbelief, in various stages of denial, they say, or they don't care. They're completely hypnotized, so they're not seeing anything but the march of phenomena in front of their senses. So the deluded do not see him who departs, stays, and joys. When Sri Ramakrishna comes and takes a body and plays for a while and goes away, nobody knows but a few people, maybe a few hundred people in his lifetime. Now, after he's come and gone, it's several million people who know him. And as the march of centuries go by, thousands and thousands of more will come to know him. But it'll be after the fact. So the deluded do not see him who departs, stays, and enjoys who is conjoined with the gunas, that is, he's taken on the gunas and is using them. He's not bound to them. But they see who possess the eye of wisdom. Those who strive, endued with yoga, cognize the Lord dwelling in the self. Though striving, the unrefined and unintelligent see him not. So, now he puts a price on this eye of wisdom practice. Practice seeing the Lord in the self. He didn't say practice seeing the Lord in nature, did he? <laughs> because we've already described what nature is. It's insentient. He's not there. By itself, we wouldn't call the sun sentient. It's a fiery ball. So there's a sentiency behind it that causes it to appear as a sun and burn and so forth. So if you're a sun worshiper, and you're just worshipping fire, flames, gases, explosions. And that's a mistake that's been made enough times. But what about the light that illumines the sun? Om na tatra surya bhati na chandra tarakam. What about that light? I should strive to see that. That's the goal by which striving they come to see. Padam tat pari margitavyam, which started off this whole chapter. That's the light which they want to see, not the light of the sun or fire or lightning or any of these other lesser glares, these glitters, these dazzling things in nature. They want the one light, and knowing that one light, they find it where? In themselves. Why else would you, Krishna, say, those who strive cognize the Lord dwelling in the self? Is that unclear? But those striving, the unrefined and the unintelligent, see him not. So there are some who will strive by the wrong means, Krishna said in an earlier chapter. Say maybe they're worshipping spooks and goblins and psychic things and gods and goddesses. They're worshipping lesser powers. 
And Sri Krishna says, those who worship the ancestors go to the ancestors. Those who worship the gods, the devas, go to the devas. But those who worship me come to me. This is the Ishvara form. He visits the earth, takes the senses and the mind and visits a body and drops it and visits another body and drops it, continually going on in the cycle of creation. From age to age, I embody myself forth. And if you look back in time, you can see him. Ah, I see him, Rama. I see him, Krishna. I see him, Buddha. I see him, Christ. I see him, Chaitanya. I see him, Ramakrishna. You can see him through this march of time. He was never any of those bodies. And he was using the mind and senses like wind deposits sense and takes sense from their sources, you see. But he was always the self. And he's appearing all the way through time to convince people, you too are the self. Be thee perfect as thy Father in heaven is perfect. He didn't say, I'm the only perfect one and you'll never be perfect, you're a sinner. Be thee perfect as thy Father in heaven is perfect. But the unrefined and the unintelligent see him not. Seeing him not would be restricting him to one incarnation. Only only came once. And you have to believe in him to be saved. But what about everyone that was living before he came, who never heard of him? <laughs> you see? Are they damned? And they can't get reborn again to see him? No, there's only one lifetime. You see, there's just so many untenable assumptions. Your philosophy is full of holes. Your holy story is a mess. You've taken the wrong things literally, and you've taken the right things wrongly. And this is one of them. Those, the unintelligent, the unrefined, see him not. And in fact, unintelligent means intelligent people. They don't have spiritual intelligence. That's why they're called unintelligent. But they have plenty of prakriti intelligence. That's what's called a worldly person. They know much more than we do. They're amazing. But their knowledge is all built around maya. They've built their house on sand instead of bedrock. How many different ways could these beings tell us? We have to look back in time and see them and take from them. We have to learn from Ramakrishna, we have to learn from Rama, we have to learn from Krishna, we have to learn from Buddha and Christ and Muhammad and Chaitanya. Look into them. What were their teachings? How did they apply at the time? How many people got liberated? And eventually my feeling is, is that you'll see the same soul in all of them. There was only one soul and it appeared many times. And that's sort of what's being inferred here. I take these senses in mind and I come down in different bodies and then I take those senses in mind away. So in Maya, associating with Maya but not bound by Maya, not deluded by Maya, whereas the Jiva is a different story. Could be very unrefined and unintelligent and therefore be bound. And that leads us right to Soka 12, which we already read. The light which residing in the sun illumines the whole world that which is in the moon and in fire, know that light to be mine. Entering the earth, I support all beings by my energy. I have become the sapid moon, and I nourish all herbs. 
abiding in the body of living beings, as Vaishvanara, associated with prana and apana, I digest the four kinds of food. So here he's talking basically about his life force. He's not life force, but it's his, again. He enters the earth, as it were, and in the embodied state, and he nourishes and supports all beings with prana. And he digests the four types of foods with the five kinds of prana. That energy is called Vaishvanara also. And then, Sloka 15, which we put on the board, very nice, in the hearts of all. Isn't that a nice saying? In the hearts of all. Sarvasya, that means all or everyone. Cha aham, that means I, aham. Hridi, in the heart. I am in the hearts of all. And he says as much. I am seated in the hearts of all, and from me are memory, knowledge, as well as their loss. I am verily that which has to be known by all the scriptures. I am indeed, I am the author of the Vedanta, as well as the knower of the Vedas. I am indeed the author of the Vedanta. The Vedanta prescribes some very powerful practices and is a very astute philosophy. It's the Upanishadic part of the Vedas. Upanishads are called Vedanta, Vedanta, the end of the Vedas. The end of the Vedas means the Upanishads. So he says he's the author, and he's also that which is known by study of the Vedas. If you study the Vedas, you'll come to the Upanishads. When you come to the Upanishads, you'll finally know, as far as the word can tell, who this Purushottama is, who this Brahman is. You'll come to know that by this study. That's the whole science of it. Just like you'll come to know quantum physics and various high-minded flights of intellect, studying math, algebra, <coughs> and physics, and so forth, and astronomy. You'll come to know certain things. In the same way, if you study these Vedas, you should come to know this author of the Vedanta himself, the Supreme Lord, who supports all these living beings as prana, and who carries with him these great attributes of prakriti, like the five senses, the different kinds of light, the different kinds of sound, the different kinds of taste, the different kinds of touch, texture, the different kinds of thought, all of these beautiful aspects you see of Brahman's maya or his prakriti, his shakti. All of those things are there. You want to come to know that. Let's go on and read 16 and 17. Here's where he brings back again that which is listed in Akshara Brahma Yoga chapter and others. There are two Purushas in the world, the perishable and the imperishable. All beings are perishable, but the Kutasta is called the imperishable. Kutasta means the refined or the unmanifest, that which is underlying all, the substratum of it. He wields power over Maya, this perishable nature, but he's never limited to it. He assumes various forms in sport, but he's never the forms. He's just associating with them. That's why you get these various names from the Hindu mythology. The different gods, the people and the beings, the various beings are all there playing or sporting in Maya. So this is much like we had earlier 
the perishable and the imperishable, and then that one who looks on. And he says so in 17, distinct is the supreme Purusha called the highest self, the indestructible Lord who pervades and sustains the three worlds. What are the three worlds? The imminent, which we see everywhere around us. Then the transcendent, which is mind and all thought. That's another world, conceptualization. And then the ultimate, absolute, which is Brahman itself. Those are called, roughly categorized as the three worlds. Imminent, transcendent, absolute. If you think in terms of those three worlds, then you'll have a more complete reckoning of this wondrous being called the Supreme Purusha. And he says, this Supreme Purusha is distinct and is called the highest self or the indestructible Lord. He both pervades and sustains all three worlds. And that brings us to Sloka 18, which is on the board. Actually, I put 18 and 19 together. It's the very last part of this chapter and talks about Purushottam itself, the highest person or the highest Purusha. He says, I transcend the perishable and I'm even above the imperishable. Therefore, I'm known in the world and in the Vedas as Purushottama, the highest Purusha. That one who undiluted knows me as the highest self, that one knows all. O Bharata, that's Arjuna. And he worships me with all his heart. So he states very definitely that he's beyond that which perishes and also beyond the imperishable nature, the unmanifested prakriti. And he's the Purushottama, the highest Purusha. Then he finally caps it off saying, that one who knows this, that is who sees that pervading reality amidst all these other things, he knows and worships me with all his heart. He becomes a lover of Brahman, a knower of Brahman. And then Krishna finishes the chapter by saying, Thus, O sinless one, has this most profound teaching been imparted by me. Knowing this, a man becomes enlightened, O Bharata, and all his duties are accomplished. And he ends, Iti Srimad Bhagavad Gita Supanishatsu Brahma Vidyam Yoga Shastre Shri Krishna Arjuna Samvade Purushottama Yoga Nama Panchadasho Jayaha. In the Upanishad of the Bhagavad Gita, the knowledge of Brahman, the supreme, the science of yoga, and the dialogue between Sri Krishna and his beloved devotee Arjuna, this has been the 15th discourse designated the Yoga of the Supreme Self.